Hey, what's going on? This is the Educated Guest Podcast, and I'm Justin, your host. This is your first time joining us. Thank you, first and foremost. I appreciate the time you take out to listen to me, to listen to my guests, and to continue to build this community. It's been exciting. It's been a wonderful ride. And I'm excited about where we're going into a new decade. I think that's exciting. I've already said that. Who cares? I'm going to say it again. It's exciting. Today, I just want to talk to you one-on-one. Bit of a fireside chat, if you will. And today, I want to talk about this concept of self-actualization. And instead of using that long word, I've got another title called You're Not the Boss of Me. The subtitle of A Lesson in Childhood Axioms. So I was thinking about it and I was trying to figure out what was true in childhood that still remains true today. Whether those be feelings, whether those truths were feelings or if they were rooted in logic, what was true about it? So before I get into the show too deeply, I want to first do a quick, (laughs) not so subtle advertisement for how you can stay in the loop with us. So you can stay in the loop at educated guests, educated underscore underscore guests on Instagram. I don't know who the real educated guest is, but that's the one that's going to be real from now on. And our website is educated-guest.com. So please don't hesitate to reach out and please don't hesitate to, to participate and to engage with the community here. Now hear my thoughts. So a quick story. A few months ago, I took a, uh, a trip back to Pelham, Alabama. It's my hometown. And I visited an old school I attended. I was nine years old, 10 years old. The name of the school was Valley Intermediate. It was this small third to fifth grade oasis that's nestled perfectly against the base of Oak Mountain State Park. It's Alabama's largest state park. And this is right outside of Birmingham for anyone who's geographically challenged or just doesn't care to look and see exactly where this is. I don't know if that's a, a nuance about me is that anytime someone gives me a location, I always want to find where it is on the map. Uh, I don't know what that's about. Cartography, study of maps. I mean, I enjoy that. All right. So while I'm at the school at 26 years of age, I'm, I'm taking a quick drive through the parking lot and I'm overcome with this feeling of reverence almost, of nostalgic reverence for what the space represented in my life and continues to represent, I realized that this small plot of land represented the last phase in my life when I would unapologetically say these words, you're not the boss of me, period. That's the last time I remember saying that. Which brings me to point number one. We are biased towards what is easy even if we know it's not true. So at face value, this might seem like an outburst of rebellion where you say something like, you're not the boss of me. That's usually what it's viewed as, especially as 
you know, a quick under uh, subscript or like a footnote here is that especially as a black guy, if you say you're not the boss of me, you're looked as you're looked at as the being defiant. Historically, you are. But I find that this expression provides a baseline for our neurological response to a harmful stimulus. That's all it is. We all have an amygdala. It all kicks up. It all fires up when we see something that is viewed at viewed as as a threat. When we see something that is either scary, jagged, and looks uncertain, as if we were animals in nature, our animalistic tendencies kick in. So the amygdala starts firing up, and we either fight or we flee. And it's interesting that our innate tendency is to fight, even at a young age, which is where the phrase comes from, you're not the boss of me. Moreover, it's even more interesting how something changes over time, how this feeling can change over time. We stop fighting for our beliefs. So naturally, I ask myself the question, how do I know this is true? So for more evidence to figure out that we naturally are biased towards what is easy and not what is it necessarily true or correct or fair, scientists at the University of College of London, this is where I went, and I I, I did some research. So scientists conducted this study. I've been telling people about this for weeks. They conducted this study to validate that the amount of effort required to do something influences what we think and we see. So it suggests that we're biased towards perceiving anything challenging to be less appealing. So these scientists, they went and they asked participants to judge whether a cloud of dots was moving left or right on the screen. I had no visual representation of this to go off of. So I'm just imagining a Pac-Man game machine, uh, something like that. So they have this lever and they were challenged to move the lever in the direction they believed the dots were flowing. So you can just imagine sitting there looking at the screen. And you're moving this lever, yet the researchers behind a hidden screen gradually added resistance to one lever or the other. So imagine trying to move Miss Pac-Man left, and it, it's almost the same weight as if you feel like you're trying to pull a 20-pound cable up in the gym, and you move it to the right, And it's the same weight as a five-pound cable. And you feel that tension. It wasn't there before. The participants changed their judgment once they felt this tension to avoid this effortful response. So even though they felt the dots were moving to the right, if if they felt 30 pounds worth of resistance to move the lever to the right, they would stop trying to move the lever to the right. So again, whichever direction or opinion was easiest for them to express became the default choice. So as you can see, this study provides a masterclass in our natural bias against action. People are always like, yeah, bias towards action, bias towards action. The reason why that's so celebrated is because it's so unnatural. So there's a greater chance that we will change our minds and acquiesce and like move towards the popular belief. If truth, if what we truly believe is hard for us to pursue. So that's point number one. We're biased towards what's easy. So us saying you're not the boss of me at 26 is far easier than saying you're not the boss of me at 35. It's far easier than saying you're not the boss of me at 45. It's far easier than saying you're not the boss of me at 55. 
And by 65, you realize that you could have said it all along. That's my theory. So point number two, it's when faced with difficulty, the thoughts that hold you back are actually not your own thoughts. So along this journey, when you're trying to figure out who is the boss of me, am I the boss of me? And we all know these, we all know the correct questions and answers. We know that all know the answers to the questions that we're asking ourselves because we're either grounded in our faith in God, we're grounded in our faith in the universe, in Mother Nature, in you know, karma. I don't know whatever you're believing in, but the point is that you know when something is true or not. So why don't you act in the name of truth consistently? So what happens along the way? Why do our dreams become so rigid? That's what really this podcast is about. That's what we always talk about on all these episodes is the act of dreaming and the pursuit of personal development that fuels your creative development, your cre- fuels your creative work. So the knowledge of self begins to show up in the knowledge of your work or knowledge of self begins to show up in the quality of your work. So what happens along the way? Why do our dreams become so rigid and why do we start negotiating with life? Is what I like to say. We're negotiating our dreams. So truthfully, the doubtful voices in your head don't belong to you. I've already said that. These voices are not your own. And sadly, because precise blame is the most gratifying, you know, like if you had somebody to blame, it would be a lot easier to accept a truth. It's difficult. The the thoughts don't belong to anyone else either. They don't. To me, these questioning voices are just fragments of past experiences. Someone telling you, Despite your, your tendency to believe that it's all your dad or all your mom's fault or all your first girlfriend or boyfriend's fault or all this person's fault, it was not truly all their fault. It's compounded. And the way I think about it in my study of neuro, neuroscience and my study of how the brain is operating, my study of psychology is that it operates more like a mosaic and like a stained glass window that you're continuously Patching in, patching in, patching in. So it's nobody's fault. So what do you do once you realize the truth? That you are stuck in your mind with thoughts that aren't even your own. And they're no one else's either. So how did they get here? That's a difficult place to be in. And trust me when I say I've been there before. And I still, I still have tendencies to go there. You know, like the only reason I'm able to say this is because I have a tendency to do that. So something that helped me understand what's actually going on is that there's this ancient Japanese tradition of comparing the mind to a pond of water. When still, the pond serves as a mirror showing us the truth. And when the surface of the pond is agitated by thought, the picture of ourselves and reality becomes much more confusing. So while we can't control every single thing people say about us, I've learned that we can control our reactions to those acts of reproach, to speak very uh, uppity, some might say. Yeah, these acts of reproach, the these like when people are trying to dep- make their deposits into a bank that they don't even have the account number for, which is what's always happening. Free advice. Say, so, yeah, hey, take this money. He was like, bro, you don't even have the account number for my bank. 
So you really can't even give me any money. You didn't even ask for the account number. You didn't even ask for which bank I bank with. You just want to give me money, but you want to give me cash that you're not really showing me. That's what I consider an active reproach. So there's this assessment of these thoughts that we have to go through. We have to assess the believability of each thought, the, believ- the, the believability of our doubt by assessing who we're hearing the thoughts from and consist in, in, in real life. There's an old saying is that in tradition, you know, traditionally, if you're seeking financial advice, logically, why would you ask someone who makes less money than you? Now, that's a very broad question if you know finance, because there's reason to believe that maybe they're having less money than you is just a short-term view of a long-term you know, advantage they might have over you. And this isn't a place, I'm not trying to make this a place to introduce financial discussion right now. This is a podcast. This particular episode is not about that. So, again, second point is when faced with difficulty, the thoughts that hold you back aren't your own. So to bring it back to the topic of this show, how do we move from being the 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old who says you're not the boss of me to being someone who's regularly accepting of a boss, to someone who's readily, who's ready to accept that maybe they don't have it, maybe they can't do it. All these conjunctions, not even conjunctions, contractions, (laughs) conjunctions, all these contractions usually are negative. Couldn't, shouldn't, wouldn't, can't, don't, won't. So the fact that we're able to do those isn't, isn't, isn't too bad. <laughs> um, so again, point number two, those thoughts aren't your own. So why did I even say all of this? Why did I introduce this, this metaphor of the child screaming out, you're not the boss of me to a teacher or an adult? I said it for this reason. I want people to hold fast to their dreams. As an artist, I find it fun to view life as an experience along this spectrum of modernism and postmodernism. That's how it's fun for me to think about it like that. The polarity of the two naturally creates a balance that most closely resembles everyday life. That balance is necessary. So this polarity creates a tension between structure and rebellion is what I'm talking about. So if you view like a huge line segment, one end is hot, one end is cold. One is structured, one is rebellious. Yet it's being between and existing between these two that really provides this crucible for something interesting to happen. And that's art and design to me. And as children, we all, we all have this Marxist approach, right? Like we all think we are the proletariat and we all feel disadvantaged. Hence why we are all prone to rebellion. And there's reason why we are silenced. We are silenced for protection purposes. And in fact, a number of books have been written on parenting the child who says you're not the boss of me. You can go look those up. And even acclaimed developmental psychologist, Eric Erickson, I like his theory in theory. You know, I don't think it's 
truly, which I'll say in just a second, I don't think it's truly exhaustive. I think it's a good introduction for the period of time when there was very little broad debate over what could be true. But he has an eight-phase theory of childhood and pre and uh, human development. And a lot of their claims, both Eric Erickson, who I admire, you know, from a, a historical and cultural standpoint, and these folks who have written all these books on childhood development, what they say has a lot of credence. There's plenty of truth to this. Yet things get a bit more fuzzy when you try to define the appropriate stages of adulthood. In other words, it's hard to say when someone is ready to be the boss of themselves. How do you know that? How do you know? So what you end up with is, in my, in my opinion, a scarily self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm, a scary self-fulfilling prophecy that is almost like r- trying to reverse and run the opposite direction on a treadmill. Depending on how many people have perpetuated thoughts that are negative in your mind will be the direct result of how well you can run in the opposite direction and how fast you can run the opposite direction. And even if you are confident in running the opposite direction, imagine trying to run in the opposite direction on a treadmill that's running, that's moving at seven miles per hour. Like That's tough. That means you have to run at least seven miles per hour. And if you let up at all, you will fall and then people will laugh and then you will be faced with the decision to continue running in the opposite direction. Or you can get off the treadmill, not knowing what's going to be next. You'll be standing still for a bit or you'll be forced to again run in the same direction as everyone else. And there's another study, which I actually read in James Clear's book, So in this book, Atomic Habits, he talks about the study of chimpanzees. And I'm not going to get this exactly right, but just hear me out. The study of chimpanzees and trying to study how influential environment can be on an individual. And they had these control, two separate control groups of chimps. And one, in one of the control groups, you had a chimp that was both, both of them were educated in how to crack open a coconut, let's say it's a coconut, in one particular way that was most efficient. Oh, no, it wasn't a coconut. It was a banana. And how to peel a banana back most efficiently, like if you had to time it. So one of the chimps went into group one. And over a period of time, defined period of time, he realized, he or she realized that the rest of the chimps were peeling the banana a different way. So over time, because we are wired for social companionship and altruism because of evolution, that chimp began peeling the banana in the completely different way that was less efficient. In comparison, the other chimp that went to peel the banana with chimps who were like-minded and had a similar idea of what efficiently peeling a banana looked like, he continued to peel the banana in an efficient way. So what I'm saying is that this fight is real and it's proven across different different areas of nature. I think nature is a great place to look for truth, you know, given the fact that we are just one in a billion different organisms on the planet. 
I think that it's important to start looking for truth in other areas in life. Despite your, despite your, um, your beliefs, your religious or spiritual beliefs, I think the Bible is a good place to look for, look for ideas of what that could look like. And there's a passage that I particularly like, and this is not, you know, I have to put a disclaimer, this is not propelling a particular religious view and trying to propose it on someone, pushing it on someone. I'm not trying to do that. This is something that I've read and I've, I like. So here we go. So the Bible is a great way of describing this, you know, this transition into self-actualization. It says, for, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial passes away. When I was a child, I taught like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I set aside, set aside childish ways. Now we see but a dim reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in par, excuse me, now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these, th- these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So the biggest lesson from this entire message is that becoming the boss of yourself has no defined timetable. And the greatest of these being love means that love of yourself is first. That's the first step into self-actualization. So I'm convinced that we're all seeking that level of clarity and confidence. Clarity and confidence. Clarity and confidence. At some point or another in our artistic journey, we all become acutely aware of our shortcomings, shortcomings and insecurities. I think that's the final stage of adolescent development which is a socially created term in and of itself, adolescence. They had to create that. There's no such, do you think of there's anything, any such thing as an adolescent monkey? I don't think so. So we're all acutely aware of these shortcomings and insecurities, and they move from the unconscious mind into the, into the conscious mind around a similar age. But the question is, and part of what this podcast is about, for artists and designers and people who are just innovators and people who want to have, leave an impact on the world and concerned with their body of work and the legacy of their work after they are gone. This is what the pod, who the podcast is for. The, <laughs> the question of what do you do with these insecurities once you realize them is central. That's central. And while we may be very good candidates for a life well-lived, we have become pros at enduring the familiar instead of flourishing in the unfamiliar. So we've become pros at doing things that we know are bad for us instead of taking the step into the wilderness in order to flourish, in order to realize that others are dancing and enjoying themselves there. So don't let anyone tell you how to feel about something. This is a message for you and for me. Again, this is a one-on-one. Don't ignore your intuition. Identify the gift of yourself and don't relent. Don't tolerate problems. And be patient in your pursuit of executing your plan. Again, self-talk. 
in the words of yay free man talking <laughs> i love that um <laughs> so begin from a place of love instead of a place of hubris and fear and link your love for someone else link your love for for yourself to your natural gifts and to other people you know that's a that's something that i learned recently it's the ability to link your love and I, I learned this from, um, where did that come from? A guy named Ed Milet has a beautiful way of putting these things. The ability to link your love for yourself to your natural gifts allows you to see the natural gifts in others. And once you understand your natural gifts and the natural gifts of others, you will never be You'll never be in a position where you want to allow someone else to be the boss of you again. And that's real power. So thank you again for joining me. I appreciate you for checking in with me on this one-on-one. There'll be more episodes coming very soon, and I appreciate it. Please stay tuned. I'll talk to you later.